You are listening to an Enoch Pratt Free Library podcast. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey starts here. Here. Good evening. It is my pleasure to bring you greetings from the African American Department in a Pratt Free Library staff, CEO, Director of Trustees, and the Board. This evening we have a wonderful program. So without further ado, I would like to bring forth Carla Dupree, who will introduce our speakers. Good evening. Oh, we got to do better than that. Good evening. evening. Welcome. My name is Carla Dupre, the executive director of a literary nonprofit called City Lit Project. We are here in partnership with the Enoch Pratt Free Library tonight to celebrate, to honor, to revel in Women's History Month. Before I began with the introduction of these incredibly remarkable women who will speak tonight, I'd like to share with you a work by Maya Angelou to set the tone for the evening. That the haughty neck is happy to bow, and the proud back is glad to bend. Out of such chaos, of such contradiction, we learn that we are neither devils nor divines. And when we come to it, to the day of peacemaking, when we release our fingers from fists of hostility and allow the pure air to cool our palms, when we come to it, we must confess that we are the possible, we are the miraculous, the true wonder of the world. That is when, and only when, we come to it. That's Maya Angelou from Pieces of a Brave and Startling Truth. Ladies and gentlemen, tonight is a multifaceted treat in three mosaic gems of literary prowess. The work you're about to experience will make you leave here with a need to write, if you're a scribe, or desire to read and learn more about these fascinating poets and their literary journeys. In this space, I ask that you leave today's troubles and work worries at your feet. Take in several deep breaths to quiet your thoughts and take take in the words of these fierce poets. Each of them lend a unique take on how we experience poetry. While they may explore similar themes, it takes shape in a myriad of ways. Celeste, Breon, and Damaris come to the world with their own versions of badass. I want you to lean in and listen. I have no idea what the world would look like without our poets to make us see the truth and who in just a few words will paint an image that you can't unsee or prick a feeling you can't ignore. I don't know what better way to celebrate Women's History Month. Even the titles of their books create a poem. A bound woman is a dangerous thing, with my head unbowed, not without laughter. Tonight, I'll briefly introduce each one of them. They'll share their work and afterwards we'll have a short conversation, then open up to a Q&A. If there's enough time, we'll ask each of them to share a short poem to carry us home, leaving enough time for you to buy their books and have them signed. Our first guest poet is journalist poet Celeste Dokes, the author of Cornrows and Cornfields, and the editor of the poetry anthology Not Without Our Laughter. Celeste is the University of Delaware's visiting assistant professor in creative writing and co-hosts the podcast called Lit Pop Bang on iTunes. Her newest poems appear in Misrepresented People, Poetic Responses to Trump's America Anthology. Celeste is the recipient of a 2017 Ruby's Literary Arts Grant Award for the work she will share with us tonight, tentatively called Gray Matter, about Mary Ellen Pleasant. Most recently, a special issue called Overlook of the New York Times included Pleasant as one of the many prominent, influential black women who never received an obituary in the New York Times until now. Pleasant, a former slave who became a millionaire and an abolitionist, was said to have lived her life between the lines of legitimacy and infamy, servitude and self-invention. She was no Harriet Tubman. She lived an unconventional life. In her new work, Celeste Dokes turns the light on this woman who was a caution, but indeed a woman who had one of the shrewdest business minds in the state of California. How dare we not know this 19th century black woman who was powerful and resistant existed Please give the warmest welcome to Celeste Dokes. Hello. Good evening. Uh, no, I think I'll stay here. Are all the ladies staying here? 
We're all staying, maybe, maybe not. Okay, so I'm going to stay here. Um, first of all, I'd like to thank the Pratt Library, um, Carla Dupre, for her always fantastic introductions. I think she's the uh, queen of introductions is what I would like to say. And thank all of you uh, for being here on a fantastic, lovely, uh, lovely spring day, uh, for coming to listen to poetry and uh, embalming yourselves in our, in our wonderful words here today. So first of all, I would like to say I'm, I'm doing three poems. Really quickly, we have a short amount of time. We're going to go one, two, three. I'm very... Uh, honored to be here with these other ladies, with uh, Lady Brian and also Damaris Hill uh, today, because all, all of us have work that address uh, black femininity and black womanhood, and I feel like it's uh, a great to be celebrating women, Women's History Month, but also it's really important um, during this particular time in American history, I feel like uh, as we're cruising t towards 2020 and uh, Kamala Harris is going to be running for uh, president, I feel like uh, black womanhood, in addition to having Michelle Obama as a first lady, black womanhood has been put into the sphere, so it's very nice to have writers writing about uh, black women. So as uh, Carla has already said, my um, person of interest is Mary Ellen Pleasant. Many of you probably don't know Mary Ellen Pleasant. Um, there are lots of things that I could tell you about her, but hopefully my poems will do some of that work. Um, she lived in San Francisco most of her life. She was an abolitionist. Uh, she helped with the John Brown uh, movement. She also did some uh, other suspicious things, like had boarding houses that, that were uh, rumored to be bordellos or, uh, right, or sort of uh, seedy places. So there's lots of things about Mary Ellen Pleasant that are of interest to me, and hopefully I illuminate some of those in my poems. The first poem that I'm going to start with is called Wanted or In Search of a Cook. Um, and this poem has an epigraph that reads, When Mary Ellen Pleasant arrived in San Francisco, her services were auctioned off as a cook. She agreed because it was customary for colored women, especially mid-19th century, to serve as domestics, but she had stipulations on hiring. Much like the sautéing of sea scallops, she approached the culinary world gingerly. Knowing a cook's job was a man's game during the gold rush, she stepped delicately onto the wharf. Bids flew in abundance between the splashing of waves. A shout for 200, then for 350. But she held out, held breath as close as kerchief nestled in bosom. She'd eye a hot pan the same way, listening for the oil's first sizzle before placing the mollusks. Sensing when the browning began, she refused all cleaning. Her hands would touch no broom nor wash a single dish. And suddenly, Quicker than a spatula's flip, she accepted $500. Now the rescued bivalve could rest and continue cooking at its own pace, plate side. That poem is much about her own agency and the fact that she was very interested in making sure that although she sort of played uh, the game uh, for that current time in terms of race and gender, that she also had some agency in terms of determining whether or not um, and how she would accept the job as a domestic worker. This next poem is entitled uh, simply Eucalyptus Trees. Um, lots of my research, I've been researching for about a year and a half now. Lots of my research, I dig up all kinds of interesting uh, facts about Mary Ellen Pleasant. Um, one of the facts that I dug up is that the eucalyptus trees that she planted on the outside of her home um, at a certain point became an eyesore for people. And so the city council in San Francisco decided they didn't know what to do with these eyesore eucalyptus trees, right? Um, eventually, these eucalyptus trees became the Mary Ellen Pleasant Park in current day if you go to San Francisco now. Yeah, right, right, right. It's a funny, it's kind of funny, right? Um, the things that became the eyesore, they eventually decided to commemorate as the Mary Ellen Pleasant Park. Um, but I sort of thought it was interesting because of the history of eucalyptus trees and what they give to the world that um, this would be such a problem for the city of San Francisco. So uh, it also has an epigraph that says, um, from the San Francisco Chronicle that says, Mary, Ple Mary Ellen Pleasant's eucalyptus trees are still the pride of Octavia Street, but there's not an agency in San Francisco that wants the job of keeping them alive. That's from uh, January 25th, 1974. And then the uh, second epigraph reads, these eucalyptus trees and plaque have now been named the Mary Ellen Pleasant Memorial Park. It is currently the smallest park in San Francisco. Also funny, but ironic. Um, 
eucalyptus trees. Like pleasant, they stand, their spindly frames defiant against a gray-blue sky. On Octavia Street, no one tends to their decaying limbs. Now they're an eyesore, unless you want their oil for insect repellent or your new perfume spritzer. Or maybe you'd raise an eyebrow if you knew they'd been used to combat malaria. You also never stop to think how they detoxify the air, convert CO2 to O2, how each of your breaths depends on their respiration, how disrespected they must feel lining your prim sidewalk as the suits and square toes pass around the responsibility like an orphan. Everyone passes the child's trunk around until, in a final fit, all the oil in those branches combusts into roaring orange flames. Sorry, I'm flipping papers because this is a brand new manuscript, not bound in a book. Uh, But it is going to be bound in a book in the uh, next, yes, it is going to find a home, indeed. Um, The last poem I'm going to end up with is a very simple poem. Um, A lot of people don't know that Mary Ellen Pleasant was the first to uh, officially to desegregate streetcars in San Francisco. A lot of people think of the history, uh, especially about desegregation, school buses as Rosa Parks, right? That's what most people know. She was here uh, on the east side of things. Uh, Mary Ellen Pleasant was the mother of civil rights on the west coast. And um, so this poem is an imagined conversation or an imagined meeting between Mary Ellen Pleasant and Rosa Parks. I would imagine they have things to say to each other if they could have met. And the poem is entitled, Woulda, Shoulda, Coulda. Standing outside your office, still as a long-leaf pine, I watch as sun slides down an Alabama sky. The air was sticky and sweet and complicated as our first glance. While waiting, the ants were building a hill in your dirt lot. Workers dug out dirt for the tunnel and then carried the debris out front, gently deposited it at the entrance. Damn if they aren't impressive, carefully placing each granule. This work goes on nonstop, and hundreds of them dig, working until they quietly find their way forward. So when you finally emerge, I nod, all polite-like, not wanting to spoil the moment. And even though I was officially first in the history books, it's too late for woulda, shoulda, coulda. I understand why they chose you, and today isn't for that anyways. The parking lot empties, the ants continue to labor, and there's no bus or streetcar between us. Just black lady smiles slicing the evening air. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Celeste. Thank you so much. We'll learn more about Mary Ellen Pleasant in our conversations. Lady Breon is an international spoken word artist, poetry coach, activist, organizer, and educator. I can tell you now, she is a force in Baltimore. She is the 2016 National Poetry Slam Champion and 2017 Southern Fried Regional Slam Champion. She is the author of the Written and Spoken Word Project with My Head Unbowed and Oral Literary Experience. This is her book and a CD to go with it. She's on the board of Do More Baltimore and is the cultural curator for Baltimore's grassroots think tank, Leaders of a Beautiful Struggle, a grassroots think tank which advances the public policy of interest, public policy interests of black people in Baltimore which was just awarded a $75,000 grant from the city. She is sick. Yes, that deserves an applaud. Brian wrote an adaptation of Antigone for Center Stage. Please welcome this spoken word poet who has been known to bring people to their feet with her words. In the words of our own beloved Lucille Clifton, listen to how she poets this. <laughs> yes, queen of introductions. Queen. Um, Yeah, thank you so much for that. So the uh, 
The poem that I want to start with is entitled Fraternal Twins. Um, it's a spoken word poem, so I won't be reading it from the book. Um, but I want to start with this poem because one of the things that was mentioned in that awesome bio makes me sound better than I feel most days. No, just kidding. Um, is I'm currently working on a project to create a black arts and entertainment district along the Pennsylvania Avenue thoroughfare in historic West Baltimore. Thank you. And so that, that $75,000 grant actually wasn't for LBS, but it was is for the um, seed funding for that Black Arts and Entertainment District. And, um, you know, throughout the last year, as we, as we have been working on the project, there have been many individuals who ask why Pennsylvania Avenue, right? Like, why that area? Um, and, you know, I have to remind folks that not only does Pennsylvania Avenue have a longstanding um, historic presence in Baltimore as it relates to arts, cultural production, and entertainment, but also um, Baltimore City has to do a better job of supporting um, black Baltimore, right? And, you know, some folks don't understand that there's a difference. Um, and, you know, in the art sector, there, you, you know, there are whole cadres of folks who are crowded out um, and don't have access um, in the ways that, you know, other folks do. And so this poem is actually written about that dynamic of, of, of the two Baltimores. Um, uh, Dr. Lawrence Brown would call it uh, the, the white L versus the black butterfly. And so um, I want to start with that poem, Fraternal Twins. Baltimore is like a set of fraternal twins, conceived as one, birthed into two, separated by a difference in characteristics. Don't believe me? Well, check the census, because half these neighborhoods been black and poor since Nixon was president and is crazy. In 68, they put a bullet through a king's dream and in the streets, were riots. 2015, a gray man is made a memory and again riots because America is still on a predominantly dark meat diet in this city. There are multi-climate conditions, concrete jungles, food deserts, fire hydrants are misting while resources run low. But behold, an oasis of plush green trees and rolling parks exist in the land of condos. Just look at the windows if you want to see pain. The rich no curtains, because they would never cover. The poor use brown plywood as a cover, and you can hear the cricket field silence or police sirens bouncing off the walls of project housing, mansions in Guilford, vacants in Gilmore, manicured lawns or weeds growing between the cracks of callous sidewalks. It's 2 a.m. And on one side of town, you'll find a white woman jogging, a taut leash around the neck of her miniature schnauzer, Sophie. On the other side of town, you'll find blue lights, cop lights, floodlights, cell phone lights in the hand of a young brother on the corner trapping while the low light of hope is ever dimming in John Hopkins medical campuses forever sprouting, touting, revitalization smiling through crest white teeth while the rotting teeth of the poor can feel the ache of gentrification in their dilapidated communities decaying like cavities but Coffee cafes foreshadow a root canal for pennies. They'll uproot a mother, father, and child, then put colorful paint over a graveyard view. Just ask Greenmount what a station north will do. Lead particles in the H2O or outdoor water fountains always aflow. Bike lanes or crater moon-sized potholes. Fiends penguin wobble to a street side lean or prescription addicts with paychecks that keep habits fully functioning. There are some communities with flower shops. Others have floral memorials commemorating homies that got popped. Tennis shoes on light poles to uplift fallen souls. Still can't see the distinction between two twins cocooned in the womb of the belly of the beast. It's easy as counting one, two, three. Just count the liquor stores. The, just count the liquor stores and churches versus dog parks, guarded fences, and organic markets. The tale of two Baltimores is not a secret. There are just some who are too privileged to ever see it. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. The next two poems that I'll share um, are a lot shorter, um, and they're from uh, my, my recently released book. Um, so this first poem, the second poem, 
um, came out of a conversation with my great grandmother. Um, so my great grandmother is from Augusta, Georgia, and we were in we were in, unfortunately in the hospital. One of my family members was in the hospital. And, you know, you kind of just sit around and wait. It's nothing else to do but talk. So I asked my grandmother, um, "How did our family get to Baltimore?" Because she's the only person in my family that I know that's not in Baltimore. Um, and she told me this story that I thought was very interesting, and I decided to write a poem about it. So this is for my great great granddaddy. It's entitled, Family Ties and Backbone. Augusta, Georgia air thick, with savannah waters, heat bubbling on the corners of immediate sky, trucks congregated, 16-wheelers stalled, scales as checkpoints searching for contraband. While waiting, men would drift from steering wheels to gin mills swallowing with the weight. Many returned to inch along their broad tires, away, some delayed instead, stirring their drinks a little longer. A southern man's skin grows flush with irritation as a brown man prolongs his sip, the audacity holding up the line. He irately tells him so with words that forgot the brown man was a man. His skin stretched taut round pride and bone, so that brown man, my great-great-granddaddy Abraham, beat that red scream into a whisper with a crowbar, then boarded a cargo cart to Baltimore, and I was born black steel. This last poem uh, that I'm going to read is entitled... I don't think I believe in love. I am not sure that I believe in love. I have seen the way the oak saplings love the breeze while swaying to the harmonies of chirping orioles that flap and love their song. I've seen the moon, no matter its mood, return to the sun each night, seen the tide on time for supper, sure that it would be greeted without question, but this luxury isn't mine. The radio bellows instructions on how to fall, but there is a certain caution tape in my bloodline, a certain warning in this collective kinship, a heeding in my history, a Mississippi homestead taught siblings how to lose one another. That water is forever, that down river is eternity, that family trees are for white folks and coloreds are just leaves blowing in the breeze, taught mama not to know her children, train her ignorant to the nape of a lover's neck or the kindness of a collarbone, made names never mind and connections of no concern, so love becomes a risk I do not have time for. An Alabama plantation taught man that boy is his name, not enough is his place. Badges taught inner city boys that innocence is not a get out of jail free card, that surrendering hands will not shield bullets, that skin is magnet for fear. Hospitals taught wombs that they are experiment, that genitals taught genitals that they are specimen, taught patient dark in hue how medicine will appreciate you in death. I want to believe in love, but history teaches that love may not live long enough to love me in return. Thank you. Thank you, thank you. I told you she's a force. A young forest. Okay, some days you want to just sink into the words, right? Okay, before our next poet's latest work had published, Publishers Weekly ranked it a top 10 history book of fall 2018 announcements. Roxanne Gay declared it a reckoning. Dr. Damaris Hill currently serves as the assistant professor of creative writing and African-American and Africana studies at the University of Kentucky. Her latest book, A Bound Woman is a Dangerous Thing, The Incarceration of African-American Women from Harriet Tubman to Sandra Blonde, has gone into its fourth printing, 10,000 copies, y'all. She has traveled across the country celebrating this book and will head to France this year to continue the spread of the ongoing message of the treatment of incarcerated women. 
But side note, can I take a moment here to reflect on the news of the day when 50 people who have been identified as scheming the admissions department at the University of South Carolina, can we take a moment here? When you align that with the news of Kelly williams Bolar, who served nine days in jail in 2011 after she was found guilty of using her father's address instead of her own in an attempt to have her two daughters enroll in a better school district than the one they were slated for. We are left to ask a few questions, aren't we? William Bolar was put on probation for three years, required to complete 80 hours of community service and pay $30,000 to the school district. Juxtapose that against the $500,000 bribe of a parent in college admission scam. It says a lot about any mother wanting the best education for her children. It says more about what black women bear to have the best for theirs in this country that will not. It says more about black women, excuse me, it says more about what black women bear to have the best for theirs in this country that will never understand their worth. So yes, incarcerating black women remains alive and well today in America. That's why we need works like Abound Women, so we can serve as witness and change the narrative of how these women are seen. Damaris Hill's latest poetry collection reads like a love letter to women who've been held in bondage, bound by oppression, or who forced the limits that society placed on them. The Sentencing Project, an organization that is a leader in changing the way Americans think about crime and punishment, states that between 1980 and 2016, the number of incarcerated women increased by more than 700%. Damaris' work addresses some notion of that. Her work has been called a call and response, a poetic dialogue that will not soothe nor temper the weight of a violent, misogynistic history. Her work represents the voices of African-American women over the past 150 years, inspired by the work of historian Kali N. Gross's book, Colored Amazons. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Damaris Hill. Thank you. Thank you, Carla. Okay, so thank, thank you, Carla. Uh, Thanks everybody for coming out today. Hey. hey, hey, I have lots of friends and family in the room, but I want to shout out the youngest of those. Hi, nieces and nephew. Yeah. I also want to shout out. Um, there, there's a student in the room. She used to be a student of the. Uh, marvelous Morgan State University, but she was recently accepted to the University of Kentucky to stu study poetry with a black woman uh, who shall remain nameless. <laughs> so I'm glad that she's here too. So thank you all for coming. Um, when I do a reading, I tend to read about women that are from the regional space that I'm in. So today I'll be reading poems to Lucille Clifton, Zora Neale Hurston, and Harriet Tubman. So I'm gonna open um, with Clifton. Um, she was very special to me um, and generous, and generous, and I'll never forget that. And even um, in her transition, she keeps passing friends toward me mm -hmm. that, and other people that knew her well that I'm meeting in her afterlife that are friends with me as well. So this poem is called In the Garden, and it's an echo poem from Miss Clifton, and it's based on one of the poems that she wrote. In this garden of marble and men, I swivel slowly in. I am some clay-faced Janice, following the drums of your tongue. Did you know these halls are prone to echo? God is dead, yet the walls are greedy for confessions. Your words mirror my truth. Forgive me, my voice is a tapestry of tacks, trying to wear the skin of your hymns. So the next person I'm going to read is Zora Neale Hurston. Did you guys know that Zora Neale Hurston was, was framed and arrested for being a child molester? People really hated how free Zora Neale Hurston was. Another fact about Zora Neale Hurston that I find intriguing is that she was accepted to two PhD programs, one at Columbia and one at Northwestern.
but nobody would pay for her to go to school. Because as an anthropologist, a lot of her research was debunking this research in race and gender politics that said that other people were better than people that were blacks or women or immigrants. And she worked very diligently using the master's tools to unpack that. And so they didn't welcome her. So we always hear about this uh, revolutionary Zora Neale Hurston, which I believe is true. But I wanted to think about what it would be for her to occupy all of these spaces of whiteness and maleness. Like, what would it be for her? So this is a poem for her. Uh, you should know some people in this poem. Does everybody in here know who Odabanga is? Odabanga was an, uh, an African immigrant, and um, he lived in the Bronx Zoo among the monkeys and chimpanzees during a time when we thought um, that black people might be the missing link between animals and human beings. Um, and Ann Spencer is another uh, Renaissance poet. Madison Grant, he'll also be in this poem. He's the, the father of the eugenics movement, so he's the father of the medical racist movement that we follow in this country. Before the Bronx Zoo, Odabanga boarded a ship, flish, flipping a fish scale like a coin, the first shiny thing he'd seen since his family was murdered. Leopold's soldier still carries the finger of Benga's daughter in his pocket to ward off evil. Remember him? The man in with the monkeys? Who can forget the way that Benga grit his teeth? They resembled claws. And Zora reads of him caged in the zoo the same year her mother becomes a ghost. Thick and wet with memories, Zora has a hard time keeping still. From Morgan in Baltimore to Howard in the district to Barnard in the Bronx, Odabanga haunts her. In slides her rituals, the folding of news clippings in with her lunch, reading the creases, the mysteries draped in her palms, this odd communion. The cradles of hell always take the shape of a woman's lips. Using a looking glass made from a martini, Dr. Madison Grant traces Zora's square jaw. When she whispers about Ann Spencer and the thespian border, Odabanga, Grant's throat burns with curiosity. He considers this Zora and all that is alchemy. Is she the prophecy of stones? The fire within the dark sciences he conjures. Okay, and so the last poem. Oh. Thanks. Okay, so um, for, for those of you that don't know me, um, I, I don't follow the rules very well, um, and I like to play really, really hard. So um, a lot of what you see in this book, a lot of the poems, I, I am playing very um, intently and very intensely. And this poem to Harriet Tubman is one of the ways that I play. And so what I mean by play here is that there are, this poem is in the form of a triptych, which means there are three columns. And each of these columns can be a singular poem, but I've also spaced the lines. And I've written this poem very specifically like this because Harriet Tubman could never be found. She could never be found. So Harriet Tubman, we know that she was an ecologist, a type of environmental scientist, a general. Um, she also founded a nursing home for black people, pre-emancipation, that she retired her parents in. Um, and it's also important to know that in this book, throughout the book, I talk about Harriet Tubman and Asada Shakur as Elijah figures. Everybody know who Elijah is in the Bible? See, I'm not really that good of a Christian, but there's a lot of Christians in my family. You know, I'm a different kind, though. I'm a different kind. I'm the kind that's going to make uh, uh, heaven more inclusive, and I'm going to make sure that we get trap music in. I'm going to make sure. Like, that's my job. So, uh, but I know a lot about the Bible. So Elijah is the prophet in the Bible that, like Jesus, did not die, but just ascended into heaven. Harriet Tubman and Ashada Shakur are those figures for me. Harriet Tubman is a very blessed African-American story 
She's one of the few people that didn't get killed. She got to die in the nursing home that she founded for her parents. And my dream is that Asada Shakur is right now in Cuba sipping the most delicious drink that's available to her and is enjoying the beauty of some woman or some man that is in her face. And I hope she is dancing and loving life. So uh, this is Harriet's poem. And it can be read in any direction starting from any point on the page. So I'm going to read it in a traditional fashion, and then I'm going to read it in an experimental way. Harriet is holding. Lick a thumb. Hold hands to the wind. What is it about water? Women. Take me, Miss Tubman, in tow. Her instructions make my mark. X, a river be as faithful as a daughter of Eve, a mother of Cain, her face a rainbow wonder, her smile a collection of stars, of springs. Between water, between women, be no mysteries. I know of no man that stands waist deep and wet in these crossings. Mossy riverbeds like braille fold in her feet. This woman needs these sweet waters in her palms. Thousands call her Moses. Ask the stars. Even Jesus needed a John the Baptist with arms wide. Her, she, in the intersections, she be revolver and rescue. All right, now I'm going to read it in a trickster way. I'm going to read it in a trickster way and make her, you know, invisible on the page. Hi, people. All right, she be revolver rescue with arms wide. Ask the stars, thousands this woman needs. Mossy riverbed stands between water, between women. Her smile, mother of Cain, a river bee. Her intersections make. What is it about? She in the intersections. A John the Baptist, her Moses in her palms, fold in her feet. These crossings I know of no man of stars and of springs, a rainbow wonder, a daughter of Eve. X, take me, Miss Tubman, in tow. Hold hands to the wind, her, even Jesus needed. Call these sweet waters like braille, waist deep and wet in. Be no mysteries, a collection, her face as faithful as my mark. Water, women, lick a thumb. not love poetry. <laughs> no, seriously. And whether you, you're listening to it, whether you, well, I, I'm a kind of person, I always have a poetry book in my purse. One yes. or two. Thank you. Because sometimes you just want to sit alone with the poem. Sometimes you want to sit alone with that poet. And um, sometimes it's not enough time like we have tonight. But um, I'm going to just ask a few questions. Anyone can answer? And then we're going to give it to the audience so you can ask questions of these poets. Um, tell us more about what moves you as literary artists to speak your truths. I think, you know, this country right now, we're under fire. And a lot of black women, I think, are holding things up. So tell me what speaks to you as an artist, what speaks to you as a poet, what speaks to you as a woman, what speaks to you as a person of color. You know, when you see things, because each of you have reached, you know, looked back at history at things. You've talked, spoken to your elders. You look at the temperature of the day. You look in your communities. So just tell me how that feeds the work and how you know you have to write a poem and get it out there in the world. Um, so I guess what I would say is two things. One, um, I see myself um, as a part of this sort of rich lineage um, of, of a black radical tradition where there are so many artists who came before me who were um, amazing in their telling of their time and I feel a responsibility to, to do the same in this time. And so um, I, I think I mentioned in, in, in our email exchange, you know, I think about it um, as that uh, South African saying Ubuntu, Ubuntu, which is, you know, I am because they are, right? And so like that's, that's the way that I see myself as an artist. Um, and that's the way I try to exist as an artist, like sharing, sharing the truth 
um, connecting with the past and also speaking towards the future um, that I want to see. And you know, for me, um, I also think about a quote that Toni Morrison said, which is that um, something along the lines of she she wrote the book she wanted to read, right? And so for me, as an as an artist, right, and I see myself kind of as an artist, right, at this intersection of art and activism. I'm also writing I'm also writing the work that I would have wanted to read, like you know what I mean? Like I'm saying the things that I think are important, and 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 I want the young sisters that are coming up after me to to have for themselves. Thank you, Brianna. That's so important to tell the story that needs to be told. One, because we never know who's listening. Mm -hmm. And we never know what young person picks up that poem, picks up that book and says, wow, I see me. So thank you for that. Celeste? Celeste? Answer that question. You want to go, Celeste? You want me to go? I can go. So I totally agree with everything. Um, Lady um, Breon said, um, but I also want to add, uh, Tony K. Bambara said that every silence that you don't speak becomes a lump in your throat and a tumor in your stomach. Mm. And I believe that to be true. Um, there's another affirmation that's similar to that, that Audre Lorde says that your silences will not protect you. But my favorite manifestation of this, of course, is Zora Neale Hurston. And she said, um, if you do not complain when your enemies, something like that, if you do not speak when your enemies hit, hit you, uh, they will kill you and say you loved it. Right? And I believe all of those things to be true. Um, there, there are enough things trying to, to limit me. I should not be policing myself. And, um, you know, a part of that ethic is also, you know, I've seen this on a t-shirt. I don't know who said it first. I'm going to curse. Um, but <laughs> yeah, I almost, I almost made it. I almost made it through. But um, do no harm, take no shit. Do no harm, take no shit. So I don't do harm to others. But I'm not going to allow anybody else to do harm if I'm standing there silently watching people become victimized. That's not really, that's not really my, my game. And if I intend to exist on this earth, the least I can do is, is invest in that level of, of safety. So, yeah. And I think I look back in history because I had to figure out how to do it better. Like, you know, we have new challenges here. But um, I'm not surviving anything that my ancestors haven't already been successful over. Yeah, so they left the cliff notes. So I'm going back to check, cross-reference, and uh, 21st century. There you go. Yeah. Um, I, don't, I don't have anything really. T I don't know if this is on. Hello, hello, hello. Um, I, don't, I don't really have anything to add, the ladies haven't already said. Um, I keep telling my students, um, black women's history is American history, LGBTQ history is American history, immigrant history is American history, right? So I think it's really important that people don't feel like just because we're telling black female stories that they're not important or instrumental to the history of America, right? They're foundational, they are wrapped inside of what America is. So um, I think the ladies have already articulated some of the things that I feel the reason why I write poetry. Um, for me, I never saw my story as a young black woman growing up in the Midwest. I never saw that articulated in anyone other than Gwendolyn Brooks, who was one of my uh, heroes. So, you know, when I grew up and read her, I thought, gosh, there's a woman out there that's talking about Chicago or, you know, the Midwest. And so I want to do that very thing. But I think you sort of start from home and you move outward, right? And I think Damaris's book, um, which is fantastic, I'm working my way through it, which is a, a fantastic rendering of history of, of black women in America. And if you don't know, you should, you should check it out. I mean, it really is. From Asada Shakur to, as she said, Lucille Clifton and Sonia Sanchez and all of these fantastic people are in this book, but it's so timely and it's so appropriate that we're reading this kind of work right now, right? We've seen this, um, you know, I'm not, again, it's not a, 
a chance to slight black men, but we've seen um, so much of this history done for black men, and it seems like for black women, even now in the, the hashtag time is, Time's Up or the hashtag Me Too movement, we're finally getting women, women's stories out in the open. So I just think, I think, it's a, I think this moment in time and history is really very important, and I'm very happy Damaris's book comes out before mine, before mine will, because I can reference it and say, look, someone else has already done the history. I think in order to go forward, you have to examine history. So I think that's, you know, that's what we all are interested in doing in one way or another. Absolutely. We are all looking at history tonight. Okay, so the, we have a lot of writers in the room, okay? So I need you ladies to tell me what it looks like in your creative process of getting a poem from here, your heart, to here, the page. Because I know when I'm writing and things start really getting to me, I can't always stand still. I have to get up. To get, I, you know, I vomit on the page. Hmm. That's what I call it, vomit on the page. Vomit I just, on the page? Yeah, I just write everything out, all my anxieties, everything that's wrong, everything that won't make it to the final draft, and I just engage in intensive revisions. Well, let me ask you this, too. Does any, do any of you censor yourself and then realize no, that's exactly what you need to put down? Everything yes. you think shouldn't be said, that's when the authenticity shows up? Right, no, I tell, I tell my students the same thing I tell myself, which is you should be writing the thing you're afraid of. Absolutely, yeah. the thing that opens up that vein. And that doesn't mean, that doesn't mean you're going to send that thing out. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I didn't say that, right? But you should be writing the thing you're afraid of. Mm -hmm. whatever, whatever, whatever that is, if that's you know, your parents' marriage or if, that's your, or if that's someone in your family who has an addiction, you should be writing the thing you are terrified of. That's right, that, that between you and your creator. That's the thing you should be writing. Now, you don't have to share with everyone. You don't have to send it out. You don't have to send out the plowshares. You don't have to send out the Bloomsbury. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? You don't have to do that, but I think it's really important to face what is inside you. you there's, no, there's, no, there's no way to avoid what's inside of you. But in addition to that, we have learned through the VITA studies that women do not submit. True. So, yes, don't send it out immediately, but send it out. Because we need to hear from you. We're taking, they take numbers of who actually is submitting to these literary journals, to these publications. Women aren't doing it. So anytime I meet a scribe, I say, get your work out. You know, get it out. When you start trusting it, think it's a little bit there, you know, show it to someone, but get it out. Brian, anything you want to mention? Um, I, I am the person that probably senses myself a lot, and my writing process is really, really slow. So uh, my professor's sitting over there, and he walked in, and he said, um, he said, I hope I'm going to hear something new. And I just bust out laughing. You are not hearing nothing new. Um, so <laughs> my writing process, it's, it is slow and painstaking, and I think that the thing that gets me writing the most and exciting the most is when there's an opportunity to perform or compete. I really, really love spoken word and being on the stage. And so there's something about the, the auditory experience. Yes. And so sometimes I take unfinished poems to stage often, actually. And, and that helps me to get through um, to the end of that poem, or it sometimes births a new poem. Um, but I don't know, it gets, it gets difficult, and especially because you know I'm out here trying to create whole new things, it, making time for art just becomes really difficult. Well, I can say this. I've seen this young poet for years, <laughs> for years, and I want you to make time for it because you guys have a little something to say. A little something. And I agree with Steve. Um, get it out. Show us something a little new <laughs> and be okay with that. We're ready for it. Right. Now, audience members, because I want to give you a chance to ask these questions, uh, questions of these poets. Anyone? Stand up and just announce. Okay, and um, I didn't hear the question. Can someone? He, he said, are there any other black women that we should know about in research? Oh, I love that question. Yes. <laughs> Damaris, give the list. I'm about to say, you got right. it. Right, Damaris, give the list. <laughs> um, There's so many. I, I think, I think um, a lot of people do not know the intricacies of Asada Shakur, and so you should, you should research her because I believe that her and Angela Davis who are two black women who are really, really demonized in American culture, but they are the people that act most in love with America and with the, with the people of America. And they're only demonized because um, this thing that we call democracy, they believe in democracy so much that they are holding people accountable for it. And because they're holding people accountable for it, 
that um, they're, they're often demonized. And we're told that they're evil women. Because I'm going to tell you something new, Amon, that, you know, your auntie is irresponsible, but I'm going to tell you. Listen, when it comes to black women in America, we all know about chattel slavery and how black people and others, it's important to say others because there were white people, indigenous people, who were forced to work for free for generations to create the wealth that the nation has. But what people don't really tell you is that black women and women that were chattel, in chattel slavery were doing double duty. Not only did we have to do the service parts of the labor, but we had to have children that plantation owners often use as credit cards to get more stuff. So that's why it's important that black women are at the forefront of challenging these mythologies about America. So I would say read up on every black woman. Be, <laughs> all of them. All of them. Anyone you can find. Because the stories that you're going to find, and that's kind of what I'm playing with in the book, they're so limited. And they don't tell you how brilliant and genius all of these historical figures were. Like, like so Zora Neale Hurston. Zora Neale Hurston used to work at Cape Canaveral. The first space station. She got fired for knowing too much. Can you imagine if Zora Neale Hurston was on the forefront of alien research? <laughs> Do you know how right that story would be? Do you know how far advanced humanity might be with that medicine and technology? So all of them. But, but yeah, pick one that does something that you like. But I also say, really look into Celeste. Um, yeah. Mary Ellen Pleasant. Mary Ellen Pleasant. <laughs> there you go. You saw me draw a blank. <laughs> it's my age. But no, Mary Ellen Pleasant was an amazing woman. Yeah. I mean, she was ahead of her times. She was a gold rush era millionaire. Yeah. And we don't know her story. Yeah. I'd also ask that, you know, writers out there, you talk to your elders. Mm -hmm. Because sometimes families keep stories that we don't realize even existed mm -hmm. until you start peeling back those layers. Those layers. Those 85-year-olds in your household, start asking them questions, and they'll tell you things. Yeah, and I would just like to add, you know, it's not necessarily that black women have to be um, idolized like they're perfect. I, I don't really believe, I mean, black exceptionalism is a thing, but also that, you know, someone, a character like Mary Ellen Pleasant is a of particular interest to me, but she, because she is kind of a trickster, she's kind of a she's an individual who uh, was definitely interested in, in advancing um, the the slave the slave movement right of her time. But she also was a person who was um, not perfect. She was a person who invested in all kinds of uh, you know business endeavors. She had uh, she used her women often to find out secrets so she could trade them for business organizations. She was um, very slick and very savvy and very smart, right? And I think that most women who have amassed any fortune in America, including probably Oprah, I don't want to, don't, I don't want people to at me, don't at me, it's like the beehive, you know what I'm saying, I don't, I don't want people to be mad at me, but I'm, I'm sure people even like Oprah have to be very slick and very savvy, I was very interested in Mary Ellen Pleasant because I think she plays both sides of the coin, both the race and the gender coin, very slickly, and I think she, she knew how to um, parlay that into a fortune and uh, save herself and, and live very long. Like I said, she also di died uh, a, very, a very placid sort of end, too. She, did, she was not killed, and that even is amazing in and of itself. So that's why I'm interested in her. So yes, Absolutely. Mary Ellen Pleasant, too. And sometimes I think, you know, sometimes we talk about, you know, why are all these stories about slavery, why do they keep showing up? You know, what, aren't we done with it? That's because we're not finished. Of course not. There's still so many stories yet to be told. We're not done. We're not done, so stay tuned. Now, I think we have a few. Did someone else have a question? One more from the audience? Dario? Anyone? No? Okay, okay we're here. Okay, so um, I 
actually have thought about it for years, but what actually like sent me on the path to, to get it moving is in 2017, I was invited to be a part of um, the mayor's task force for safe arts. And it was basically because there was like a fire um, in California, the ghost ship, um, and it kind of spurred this conversation around the nation about how do we make sure that creatives are living in places and working in places that are actually safe and not just up in abandoned buildings like, oh, but look, the walls are so pretty, um, even though they're falling down. So <laughs> um, when I was a part of that task force, um, you know, I wasn't really in the fold. I was one of the few community artists. It was a bunch of gatekeepers at the table who already had their ideas about what should be happening and how their organizations should steer the conversation. And so the one recommendation that I made is, look, it's a whole lot of people that y'all don't, don't have access to, you're not networked in with, that should be a part of this conversation. And so we're going to talk about really um, creating a more robust um, art ecosystem that includes the black and brown creatives in this city and making sure that we're really supporting them. We should have an arts and entertainment district on Pennsylvania Avenue. It made it into the official recommendations to the mayor. And that's all I needed. I was like, oh, we out here. Look, we got the mayor's support. Listen, like... <laughs> Who with me? And I kind of, I did a, 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 you know, a public meeting um, last February, um, 2018, and there were like 125 people who showed up, and I made some connections, and we've been rolling ever since. Yes. Okay, ladies, I think there's one more time for another, one more poem. Oh, oh, there's okay. a question. Oh. And I gotta figure out. Okay, come on. No, bring it. Absolutely. I have a PhD in English literature fiction. At the time I was earning my PhD, which is also experimental. I believe that that genre is fake, like race. <laughs> Come through. There, there's good writing and there's bad writing. There's good music and bad music. And the type of artist that I am as an experimental artist, relying on a jazz tradition that has moved into hip hop, I got to be new every day. Every day. Because everything that touches me changes me, and everything that I touch, I hopefully change in a positive way. Um, so I just got to be new every day. And so I'm not going to be bound to, to genre. Like, I found my agent because I was looking for a fiction agent. She told me she, I was, she was my fiction agent for a year and then read my poetry and said the poetry is coming out first. And then I sent her nonfiction, and she was like, oh, this is going here. And as a matter of fact, go back and get your contracts for the past six months and tell them I'm coming. So, like, I think... I like her. I love her. Are you kidding me? I love her. I love her. Um, but I just think this is the type of... Um, I think this is the, the, the... I'm not of the generation, but I think that the generation that's emerging is beautifully boundless. Yes. That's a gift to us all. It is. It's a gift to us all. It is. Yeah. What she said. Read it now. Yeah. I need a poem for each of you. Okay. Oh. So, um, I, I guess I'm, am I going first? Okay. So, I, I'm going to read something um, old, very old. Uh, I want to thank, uh, I have to thank someone in order to read this. Um, this poem existed, as a lot of my poems do, uh, unbound out of, outside of a manuscript. And um, somewhere, some, a friend of mine named Sarah Browning asked me for this poem. Um, I think it's apropos for tonight because it's entitled American Herstory. Um, this is on the Split This Rock uh, Quarry website. You can Google it if you are interested. Uh, American Herstory. Tell them it's always under attack. Tell them there is no cure for the disease or answer to the riddle. Tell them you asked many before you, some who won, some who lost. 
Tell them you consulted Asada, Roe versus Wade, Harriet and Jocelyn Elders to no avail. Her words on contraception twisted into a bitter pretzel, the bits broken off and used to destroy her. Tell them it's always under attack. It's predators everywhere. They lurk behind Mississippi clinics or around Georgetown blocks dressed in blue uniform. Tell them you have the cure somewhere at home, deep in your cabinets, mixed in a mason jar. Don't tell them it consists of breast milk, dreams, butterflies, civil rights marches, burn bras, a piece of Madam C.J. Walker's hair, Prayers, Amelia Earhart's drive, hot water cornbread, and Sally Ride's fearlessness. Lie to them. Tell them it's rosemary oil, and then bottle it. Sell it to every woman in America who will drink it. Then watch all the piranhas disappear. (laughs) Okay. Um... I was trying to decide what poem to read. I think I'm going with uh, this poem entitled More Blocks. It was written in response to a Natasha Trethaway poem about, um, in which she was talking about leaving uh, Mississippi. Um, <laughs> get it, that part. Um, so yeah, it's entitled More Blocks. At times it seems the concrete won't let you leave. Every corner cements your feet the way they did your father's. Your mother sits on the stoop, counting the sirens. Stray cats wander as you remain caged. They purr in the bliss of nine lives while your time drips away like frozen cups on summer days in the city. Try this, leave today. Careful not to forget where you came from. Step past the cracked alleyways. Do not wave goodbye to the winos. Empty bottles will not remember your departure. Do not, do not leave, sorry, do not let vacants make a home out of you. Your pockets are empty, but making something out of nothing is all you know. Nod to the flickering lights, the crumbling brick. Avoid falling into potholes along the way. Get on the first set of wheels leaving the city, because there is more than 10 blocks in this world. Bring only your ambition the hustle bred inside of you. And when you return, there will be a street memorial of teddy bears and hardened tears framing the faces of expired friends and the person you once were. Okay, um, this is entitled The Arms Race, The War on Drugs, Asada Shakur in 1984. Ronald Reagan never converted. He remained an actor. (laughs) Ronald Reagan never converted. He remained an actor. He grinned and said the arms race was over and pushed a wooden nickel into public lunch programs. Desperate to caress the sweat of the rainbow, he huffed his knuckles in the clay. A wish for your power. Your aura is a prism, a space where colors refract and bow, obliging your every gesture. He can't forget it. You do the impossible. Weave unity in the bands of a crescent. You are his obsession, a black mark of beauty on his neck he calls a cancer. A spade in his eye, an uncalculated risk, splendor glowing beyond the streetlights. With your dreadlocks thick and coarse in the voices of children, he will make filaments from your hair. America's most wanted. He musters up a murder, a reason to negotiate. He scales solidarity against your life and divides it by the national debt. Your image becomes the subject of satellites, worshiped by every star. Each of them looms like a lotus flower in your lap. I have to tell you, um, I write fiction, but poetry, uh, poetry hits me in my soul. Thank you, Damaris Hill. Thank you, Lady Breon. Thank you, Celeste Doak. A big hand for me, Blake. I want to say thank you to Tracy. Thank you to Edith Pratt Library. Thank you, um, City of Project, our board chair, Brian Lyles is here, and Stephen is here. Um, 
I, I do want you to write down Saturday, September 20th. Um, September, sheesh, gosh. <laughs> oh, man. No, Saturday, April 27th is the 16th annual City of the Festival. You have got to be there. It is going to be spectacular. Our keynote speaker is Danny Shapiro. She wrote a book called Inheritance. If you want to know about your DNA and what happens when you learn a little bit about your family, come hear her speak. She wrote a book called Still Writing for Every Creative Out There You Need to Read. We have a um, master class with novelist playwright Kia Corthorn. We have children and adult literature panel coming with Sharon G. Flake, Tiffany Jackson. It is going to be an amazing time, and it's free. All you have to do is bring your energy. April 27th. Once again, thank you. Read and buy their books. Support them. Each of them have websites uh, by their name, so it's, not, it's going to be very easy to get to. But really, please, support these poets. Support every poet that you know. Kind of lift them up and support them. Thank you so much. Have a good evening. This podcast is a production of the Enoch Pratt Free Library and the Maryland State Library Resource Center. For more information and to access more library resources, please visit prattlibrary.org.